Thank you. All right. So uh, again, it's a it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure for me to be here today. I really want to thank uh, Nick uh, Cho for uh, inviting me to share a little bit about what we're doing at UC Davis. And so uh, we just listened to a great talk from Hannah about uh, World Coffee Research, uh, which is focusing on agricultural research. And you know, the goal at UC Davis, uh, the coffee center, we're trying to set up the world's first academic university research center focused on post-harvest processing of coffee. Okay. And so what I'm going to do today is uh, a couple things. Um, and I'd like, if you know, provided we have time, uh, share uh, two main parts. And so the first part, um, you, a few of you in this room are maybe have heard a little bit about this before. I think most of you have not. So I'm going to share what are we doing at UC Davis. I'm going to say a little bit about the UC Davis Coffee Center. Very short take-home messages. We have a whole building on campus we're taking over. You'll hear about that. And then uh, part two, uh, I'm going to say a little bit about some of the uh, research activities that are uh, currently ongoing. And I think many of you in the room are very interested in brewing of coffee. And so we actually have some pretty, I think, exciting research going on uh, about updating something called the coffee brewing control chart, which I'll explain in more detail. Okay, so first uh, part one, you know, the UC Davis Coffee Center. First of all, if you don't know where UC Davis is, uh, I, I plotted this this morning. Uh, on Saturday morning, it's exactly a one hour and three minute drive from, from this location right here. I can't uh, promise that on uh, weekdays, but it's, it's about a one hour drive, okay? And so, you know, we're, we're here in San Francisco. Napa Valley is, you know, up here, and then uh, we're, Davis is right next to Sacramento. So it's very close by. And uh, Hannah kind of alluded to this. I mean, so we do have a world famous strawberry program, uh, excellent agricultural, things like that. In the world of wine and food, uh, we're uh, very famous uh, for the Department of Viticulture and Enology. It's, uh, I think, arguably you know, the best one in the world. Um, it's about 15 faculty members dedicated to wine, uh, sorry, uh, you know, growing uh, grapes and then making them into wine. We also have, a, depending on who you talk to, one of the top three uh, you know, food science programs um, in the nation. And so, uh, including, uh, that's Charlie Banforth right there. He does uh, one of the best uh, beer programs in the world. And a huge fraction of the craft uh, brewers in the nation went through uh, you know, Charlie's programs. And so a lot of the, these, both, these two departments are both housed in something called the Robert Mondavi Institute at UC Davis. You might recognize the Mondavi name. It's a type of wine. You can go to the store right now and buy it. Uh, he became very wealthy selling wine. And he donated um, about $100 million to build a whole complex dedicated to wine and food science, okay? And so uh, it's only one hour drive. I highly recommend you come out. Uh, we are gonna be hosting an SCA uh, Roasters Guild Sensory Summit next January. We've done that the past couple of Januarys. We're doing it again this uh, coming January. Uh, if you can make the time to come out and make the trip, I recommend it. And so uh, I like showing this uh, right here. One of the buildings here is uh, the um, pilot winery, pilot brewery, and pilot food production facility. And so it's a, it's a really awesome facility. It was uh, the world's first LEED Platinum uh, certified food production facility. Um, you can see the floor plan here. The purple stuff is the winery. Uh, the color's not really showing up, but there's the brewery, there's food processing. Um, that one building by itself in this four building complex, about 30 million, you know, uh, it's used by dozens of faculty, hundreds of students uh, year long. It's, it's a big deal on campus. And the thing I like to point out to coffee audiences is that out of this whole investment, literally none of it was uh, aimed at coffee, just, just none, okay? And you know, why is that? Uh, well, it really goes back to kind of the history of how academia has been funded in this country. So we get a lot of congressional support. Uh, the Department of Viticulture and Knowledge is literally written into the constitution of the state of California. When the University of California was founded, it said there will be a Department of Viticulture and Knowledge. 
you know, why is coffee different? Coffee is different because it's not grown here. So there are, many, there are never stakeholders here saying, hey, we need, we need this research focusing on coffee. And without the government support, there was no academics. Without any academics, there's no, no research, no curriculum. And so when this complex was built, it, I mean, it, coffee just wasn't on anybody's radar as a topic you know, worthy of making any uh, investments in. And so this, this complex was uh, f uh, finished being built around 2009. Um, you know, how did I get into it? Um, and so I, I don't know if you, I can't remember if you said there in the introduction, but I'm actually a professor of chemical engineering. Okay? And so uh, back in 2012, one of my colleagues, uh, Professor Tanya Kuhl, also a chemical engineer, and I had this idea. And the idea was, hey, can we use coffee to teach chemical engineering? Right? And so we were sitting around brainstorming, trying to think about how do we improve our senior you know, unit operations labs. And uh, Tanya suggested, hey, why don't we have our seniors take apart a Mr. Coffee drip brewer, you know, that, that's a great engineering thing. Let's take it apart and see how it works. And I thought, oh my gosh, why, you know, why do that just for our seniors? Why don't we make an introductory course for everybody? We can map on the entire chemical engineering curriculum onto coffee. We'll make a, you know, it'll be a lot of fun. And so that's what we did. Uh, we rolled out a freshman seminar, and these are actually a few slides from, uh, from the talks that we give now. And so when I tell people that I'm a chemical engineer, a lot of people, their first thought is like, what are you doing? Are you like adding weird chemicals to the coffee? Like, what's going on there? And that's, that's not the point. And one of the key things we try to convey in this course is that we're using uh, the ideas you know, that are fundamental to chemical engineering, and we're illustrating them with coffee. And so here's a picture of some green coffee beans. There's a big arrow and a question mark going to a cup of coffee. How does that transition occur? What, what's going on there? And what we uh, emphasize is that you know, uh, chemical engineers design ways to convert uh, you know, some type of raw material into a desired product. And we really talk about some of the key things that affect the, that uh, process. So we have transport phenomena, how does heat, how do molecules like caffeine, how do they move from one phase to another, how does mass move around, thermodynamics, you know, how does energy uh, and work uh, um, affect the process. And then what makes chemical engineers distinct is the huge emphasis on chemical kinetics. And when you guys are roasting coffee, it's a whole series of really insanely complicated chemical reactions taking place over a very short time period. And so the key point is that these are all very uh, crucial for coffee. And so uh, we rolled out a freshman seminar. Uh, it was called The Design of Coffee. It's a three-unit course offered at UC Davis. It's one hour of uh, lecture per week, but then two hours of lab activities uh, hands-on in the undergraduate coffee lab at UC Davis. Okay. And just to give you uh, a brief feel for what we do, um, we're on the quarter system, so there's 10 weeks of uh, lab experiments. We have about the first six weeks are all really focusing on core scientific principles using coffee to illustrate them. We talk about conservation of mass. We talk about uh, pH and uh, chemical kinetics. We talk about mass transfer. That's how molecules move from the solid phase, the grounds, into the liquid phase, the water. Okay? And then we switch it up uh, on the last third to a design competition where the students have to make the best tasting coffee, as judged by a blind taste panel, using the least amount of, of electrical energy. And so their final uh, score is the blind taste score divided by the kilowatt hours of energy. So it's kind of a classic engineering optimization problem where you have to maximize something and minimize something else. And uh, sorry for the product placement here, but here's, here's the lab manual. Um, and so that's available on Amazon. I brought a whole bunch right here. And so I have as prizes for whoever asks the, the most challenging questions at the end. You guys can go home with a free uh, book, okay? So yeah, okay, there we go. Um, and so that, that, that's the, uh, the course, and just to give you a feeling for the type of things that we do, everybody in this room knows, you know, kind of this classic pictorial outline of how you make coffee at a benchtop uh, scale. You know, we, we use in the lab, like, little benchtop uh, roasters, and then we, uh, um, you know, grind them and brew them. Um, and so what I like to emphasize to people is that this is how a, you know, a normal person would think about uh, the process of 
uh, making coffee. And this is how a chemical engineer would look at that same process, okay, in terms of a so-called process flow diagram, and look at how the, um, all the different unit operations affect uh, the final uh, cup quality. And I'm not going to go through all the different labs. I mean, here's, uh, here's one of the things we do. You know, we have the students. We do what Professor Cool suggested. We take apart, have the students take apart Mr. Coffee. How many people in this room have taken apart a Mr. Coffee uh, drip brewer? Only, the only person, let the record state that the only person raising his hand is Nick Cho in the back of the room. Okay. All right. And so <clears throat> if you guys come to Davis, you can do it. It's a great experiment. And we ask them you know, kind of fundamental mechanistic questions. You know, if you've never thought about it, here's a great question. What makes the water move in a Mr. Coffee? And it's not a pump and it's not boiling, uh, you know, going up a steam and condensing. So I'll let you guys think about it. If you want to know the answer, you have to come take the class. Okay. And so <laughs> we, we also, we talk a little bit about chemistry, you know, at a, at a very elementary level. Um, there's some scary looking uh, chemical formulas up here. What we try to do at this kind of introductory level is relate them to things that you know about. If you aren't aware of this, there actually is literally vinegar in your coffee. That's a um, consequence of so-called fragmentation reactions. This thing on the left is sucrose, right? Table sugar. It's present in green coffee beans when you roast. Um, you get a whole bunch of different things. There's these classes of reactions. You get formic acid, acetic acid. Uh, HMF, uh, that's the, one of the key uh, odorants for caramels, little caramelization reactions, and uh, melanoidins and things like that, the stuff that makes it brown, are all formed uh, during roasting. Um, we also talk a little bit about this. I mean, I think probably everybody in this room recognizes the sensory wheel. Um, I can't uh, resist bragging about one of our grad students, Molly Spencer, was a teaching assistant for the coffee class, and she got really interested in coffee. Now she works with John Zavi Guinard, uh, co-director of the coffee center, um, and she did the statistics for this. And uh, it was on the cover of the Journal of Food Science, uh, for, so I'm always doing great for that. Um, and so just to give you a sense of the scale uh, of how big this class is at UC Davis, um, for contrast, here are the number of students who take the introduction to beer brewing uh, course each year. Right? So about 1,200 students. You can see this maybe arguably a slight downward trend. And then here is the design of coffee. Okay? And so we started as a, a freshman seminar in 2013, and it's just exploded. Um, we're now limited by the size of the largest lecture hall on campus. So we teach more than 1,500 students per year, now taking you know, an academic university level class about coffee at UC Davis. And this is my very favorite slide. So last uh, spring, the students voted on their favorite general education courses on campus. Number one was design of coffee. Number two was introduction to human sexuality. Number three was introduction to beer brewing. So at UC Davis, you know, uh, coffee is better than beer and sex uh, all together. Okay. So, and so, uh, like I said, it's a lab course. We have the hands-on things. And we haven't done this in a vacuum. Uh, when we started out this process, we, uh, um, you know, Tani and I, oh, frankly, we just got into it. We thought it'd be fun. We'd get some coffee. But it really caught the attention of the industry. We met people like Peter Giuliano. We met Nick Cho. He came out and visited. Um, we've had a lot of support from different people in the, um, in the coffee industry. Uh, Nick, in particular, uh, really helped us out when he saw the kind of uh, <clears throat> inferior products we were using initially, he said, this, this can't stand it. He made a couple phone calls, one to Akaya and also one to uh, Baratza, and they very generously donated all the grinders that we uh, use now uh, at the undergraduate coffee lab. Is there anybody from Baratza here? Yay! <laughs> round, of, round of hats. Those, <clears throat> can, can, I do, can I give product placement plugs? I mean, th those grinders are awesome, because they have 1,500 students per year use them. We have students who don't know anything. They throw rocks and green beans in there, and like, the grinders are still going strong. So, so thank you. Okay. Okay, but so th this is the undergraduate coffee lab, okay? But you know, what, what's next? And so at the very beginning, I said, hey, there's this coffee center. Wait, what is that? I mean, so we, we have this undergraduate introductory level, you know, kind of magnet course. But what about, what about research? What are we doing there? And so just to give some uh, perspective on that, 2013, we rolled out this, uh, you know, uh, um, freshman seminar. 
2014, a bunch of faculty got together. Uh, we slapped together a website, said, hey, we're thinking about coffee. We call that the coffee initiative, but there's no kind of physical infrastructure behind it. Um, in 2015, we renovated the undergraduate coffee lab and you know, started doing the 500 students uh, per quarter. And whoops, we're missing a very important one there. Sorry about the animation mess up. But in 2016, some of you might have heard about this, Pete's Coffee actually gave a, a founding uh, gift to open a UC Davis uh, coffee center. And then over the course of the past year, I've been spending a large amount of time talking to various uh, potential industry partners. Um, we've collected uh, support or formed partnerships with several different entities, including Wilbur Curtis Company, which uh, I think many of you will be familiar with. Um, here are these uh, Nicaraguan companies uh, are associated with uh, certain Davis alums that are very excited about helping the Nicaraguan coffee community. And so what, what's all the excitement about? What, what are we doing here? And so this is the picture on the very first slide. And so there's a whole building the whole building uh, on campus at UC Davis, about 6,000 square feet, uh, that just by serendipity, by good luck, is got emptied out. I mean, the previous occupant moved out. He got recruited at a, another university. And at that time, the coffee lab had exploded in popularity. It was clear there was a lot of enthusiasm, support from industry. And so the administration gave us the green light, said, hey, if you can get some renovation funds, you guys can turn that whole building into a coffee center for research and for upper level uh, education. And that's exactly what we're doing. And so this building is located uh, very close to the Robert Manavi Institute that I already mentioned. And so that's, that's over here, there's a vineyard, and then it's over there, um, uh, about an eight minute walk away. And uh, so it's, like I said, it's 6,000 square feet. It's uh, got four, the most exciting thing from a coffee roaster's perspective, it's got four high bay laboratory spaces. Those are the four garage doors there. Uh, and it's all open uh, space, okay? And so what's our vision for this? We really, uh, we wanna take over from, you know, Hannah and WCR are doing great work on how to deliver green beans you know, to us here in the States. And we want to have a whole facility dedicated to what do you do with them afterwards. And so kind of starting in the top right corner, one of the rooms we're going to have is a experimental green bean storage facility where imagine that you have lots of environmental chambers uh, where you can dial in specific profiles in temperature and relative humidity and do that under very carefully controlled conditions and see how those storage conditions of the green beans affect the final cup quality. Um, the brown room going next is the Pete's Coffee Pilot Roastery. We coupled with Pete's, just to be very clear, Pete's uh, provided the gift for the renovation. Probot in Germany uh, donated about a quarter million dollars worth of uh, roastery equipment. So we're having a, like a P25, a P5, a Probotino, destoners, uh, you know, the, the whole works to make a really nice um, uh, pilot roastery. The next room is a pilot cold brew and advanced packaging facility. So a lot of, lot of interest in cold brew. Um, very little or basically no academic research on it. We're going to have a whole uh, lab for that. And then obviously, you know, at the end of the day, it's the sensory that matters most. So we're going to have some sensory descriptive isolation booths and uh, a, a laboratory just dedicated to doing carefully controlled uh, sensory tests. But we're also going to have some uh, non-food grade uh, analytical chemistry space to, you know, do mass, uh, sorry, uh, mass spectrometry to identify what molecules are present in different cups. And then a whole brewing and espresso laboratory where you can really geek out with all the different espresso machines we're planning on having in there. And then some classroom space. Just to be clear, the circles here are uh, the ones that have already uh, received um, philanthropic gifts to name those rooms. If anybody in this room is independently wealthy and would like their name on a room in the coffee lab, come talk to us. We can help uh, facilitate that. Okay. And so <clears throat> in terms of what the coffee center is going to be doing, um, this number is actually out of date. We're closer to 40 uh, faculty now uh, of people on campus who are very enthusiastic and interested in coffee. Um, I won't go through this whole thing. I mean, one of the key ideas here is that not only do we want to like help produce cutting edge research on folks on coffee, um, we also want to really create a, you know an improved pipeline, academic pipeline for the coffee industry. 
And so, uh, I mean, and you guys, frankly, are one of the big target audiences. We don't not only want to teach, you know, our undergraduates on campus, but we also want to provide professional, uh, you know, training opportunities, um, a master's program, graduate degrees. It might be possible within a few years to get a, a master's degree in coffee science uh, at UC Davis. So that's one of the things uh, we're looking for. And at a shorter scale, we're also thinking about having uh, or emulating the great success that the beer and wine programs have had with extension courses. They have like one day workshops, one week uh, courses, things like that. We want to have the same thing um, in this uh, center. And then we're going to be having uh, lots of uh, funding as well to look at uh, various questions in coffee research. And there is a long list. I mean, Hannah highlighted just uh, a small subset of the questions you know, facing the, on the agronomy side, growing this stuff. Here, there's a long list of things. That, what happens to the cherries after you uh, pick them? Lots of excitement right now are thinking about you know, what happens in the fermentation step. Uh, after you take the green beans, you put them in the, when you wet wash them, there's bubbles coming out, something's fermenting. What is that process? How does it affect the final cup quality? Very little is known about that right now. And so we're gearing up to do some uh, uh, studies uh, down in Nicaragua with our partners down there. And I'm not going to read this long list. There's a whole bunch of things, all the ways basically from right after you pick the cherry, through the roasting, uh, you know, through the sensory analysis. And then we also, I should, we also have expertise on campus in agricultural economics and even coffee law. There's a law professor who's very excited about uh, things like Prop 65 regulations and things like that. Things that I don't uh, know much about, but they're very excited about. Okay, so that was a kind of whirlwind tour of the coffee center, okay? And so um, what I'd like to do is uh, take a few minutes and really talk about, you know, just one example of the things that we're doing, and it's an example that I'm working on, so I, I feel I can say uh, a bit about it. And so the coffee brewing control chart, I'm, I'm curious, how many people in this room know all about this, know about the coffee brewing control chart? A large fraction, okay? Have you ever thought about where it came from, like how it was derived? You're about to learn right now about how it was derived, okay? And so it was uh, developed by this guy named Earl Lockhart in the early uh, 1960s. And what, it, what it's showing you, okay, is it's basically a plot that shows you um, that there's a relationship between how strong the coffee is, that's this vertical axis, that's how much dissolved solids you have in your cup of coffee on this vertical axis, so up higher is stronger. This way, on the horizontal axis, is the extraction, the percent yield, and that measures how much of the solid you pulled out of the coffee grounds into the liquid phase. Okay? And then these diagonal lines, that's the so-called brewing ratio. So it's how much water did you put in over your coffee grounds. And then overlaid on top of all this is uh, these uh, sensory descriptors. Okay? So on the left-hand side, over here it says underdeveloped. Uh, this is a version I made for my class because uh, I like it a bit better. And I like to use the phrase sour. So it tends to be uh, more acidic, more sour. On the far right, it tends to be more bitter. And there's this uh, kind of magical spot in theory, right in the middle, where you can just have everything balanced perfectly. Okay, and so this this is the uh, brewing control chart. I th my impression, uh, maybe not for this audience, but other people I've met in the coffee industry, it's kind of like you know it, it was manna from heaven. It just like showed up somewhere, and nobody knows where it came from. It came from somewhere, uh, you know. And let's go through where that came from. And now we get to the equations. My favorite part. I'm an engineer. Okay, so you can actually derive all of the numbers in the coffee brewing control chart. Okay, and these are lecture slides. So what I'm highlighting here is that um, when you think about conservation problems in uh, engineering terms, that's, that's the fancy phrase. It just means, hey, let's keep track of how much stuff we put in, how much stuff comes out. And so under appropriate circumstances, uh, which pertain to the coffee brewing control chart, it really boils down to a very nice attractive equation, which is how much stuff you put in has to equal how much stuff you get out, which sounds pretty simple until you start thinking about specific problems. Right? And so I'm going to do a couple examples for coffee. The first is thinking about, let's do a mass balance on the water, 
okay? And so when we put our water into a, a Mr. Coffee or a pour over or whatever uh, technique we want to think about, okay? We know we have one stream of water going in and we measure that, we know that. And then on the way out, we have three streams that come out and each of them in general has water, okay? And so this is a simple idea. The mass of water that you feed in has to equal the sum of the mass of water in each of the other three streams, okay? Nothing controversial there. Um, but the thing is we don't know ahead of time what the fraction is in each of those three streams. And so what we can do is make some assumptions. And the very first assumption, and this is basically what Lockhart did back in the 60s, but very implicitly didn't write it down anywhere. So here I'm spelling it out. The first assumption is, hey, let's neglect evaporation, right? Unless your Mr. Coffee is malfunctioning and steam's billowing out, if it's not doing that, then you can probably neglect the mass of water lost in the steam, okay? Um, and so you cross out one of the terms. And engineers love writing down complicated equations and then crossing down as many as possible. And so that's what we're doing here, okay? So that's the first assumption. A second assumption is that, you know, you guys all know that coffee is actually, you know, the coffee you drink is mostly water. It's about 99, 98, 99% water, okay? And so what we can do is then make this a simplification that the mass of water in the brew, okay, is basically roughly equivalent to the mass of the brew itself. Okay, so another simplification, and there's a fun animation plopping in. And then, um, I like doing that for the students. They, like, it helps keep them awake. There we go, boink, boink, okay. All right, and so the third one, okay, is the trickiest one. Uh, by far. And that's like, well, how much water is left behind in the spent grounds? You guys know that you put water in, the coffee grounds start off dry, then they, then they end up wet. Okay, how much water is there? Okay. And so the key thing, or the analogy I like to point out is that coffee grounds are very much physically like paper towels. And so here's the thought experiment. Take some dry paper towels, hold them under a slowly uh, dripping faucet. Okay. Initially, the paper towel will catch all the water. Okay. And how much? It'll, uh, start, it'll absorb as much as it can, and then if you keep going, then the water will start dripping through, okay? Because its absorption capacity is exceeded. And that's exactly what happens with coffee, okay? And so here, uh, we can define that mathematically as the absorption ratio, R sub abs, and what is it? This is how much water did we hold in the paper towel per mass of paper towel. Same thing for coffee, okay? Dry coffee grounds also absorb water, just like a paper towel, and they absorb so many grams, okay, per mass, so many grams of water per mass of, of coffee grounds. Okay? And so if we take that uh, ratio, the absorption ratio, um, and it's basically, uh, you can rearrange and say, well, here's the question, how much mass of water is left behind the coffee grounds? It's going to be this absorption ratio times the mass of the dry grounds. Okay? And so you do a little bit of algebra, more funny animations, and now we have a predictive equation rearranged here. And for anybody who works in a coffee shop, you might not realize it, but this equation basically you know, run, dominates your life. This is it. Right? So if you want to know how much coffee you're going to get, uh, here's the equation, the mass of the brew of coffee is equal to how much water you feed in minus something, okay? Minus something, you get less. And what is that something? Well, there's actually a formula prediction for it. It's the absorption ratio for coffee, okay, times the mass of the dry grounds. And so this, this blows a lot of my uh, uh, freshman students' minds. You know, they think, oh, I want to make stronger coffee. I'll put in more coffee grounds. And yeah, you can do that. You also get less coffee to drink, right? And so they have, uh, you know, a volume constraint on the engineering design thing, they have to deliver at least one liter of coffee for the blind taste thing. And the ones who don't listen carefully to the, these lectures, they, they mess that up, okay? And so, and so in the lab, we do some fun experiments. You can actually measure the absorption ratio. Uh, for those of you who don't know this, uh, it's roughly, not always, roughly uh, 2.1 grams of water per gram of dry coffee grounds, okay? And you can do some nice uh, examples of linear regression and things like that. And so <clears throat> switching gears though, I want to get to the coffee brewing control chart. And now the water is one ingredient. The other ingredient is the coffee, okay? The actual solids. And so just as a reminder, you know, coffee is roughly somewhere about uh, 26 to 30% maybe soluble in water. Uh, so that means that the most you can get out is 30% of the mass. 
Okay. And so the two key metrics, going back to what I pointed out in the coffee broom control chart, the first one is the percent extraction. That's how much you rip out of the coffee grounds into the aqueous phase, right? And I just said the maximum we can do is 30. The least you can do is zero, so it's always between about zero and 30. And the other one is characterizing the brew, what you're drinking, that's the total dissolved solids, okay? And so the characteristic numbers, like we said, it's about 1.5% for a typical cup of coffee that you're drinking. The extraction is typically about 20%, okay? And so if we again apply mass conservation arguments, and now we do a mass bounce on how much coffee solids move around, we, have, we know what we start with. We start with the mass of the dry grounds, right? And then some of it goes into, some of it's retained or left behind in the uh, spent grounds. And we're going to call PE that percent extraction. We divide by 100 because it's a percentage. And that's that green box. And then we have some over here in the red box. That's the coffee solids that end up in your cup of coffee. And the key idea here is that the blue box has to equal the green box plus the red box, right? So they, that in equals out. And so when you do that, okay, here's, here's that equation. You rearrange. And we get another equation that uh, dominates your life. Uh, you might not know it, but here it is. The percent extraction, how much you ripped out of the coffee grounds, is proportional to the TDS times this ratio of the mass of the brew, how much you're drinking, over the mass of the dry coffee grounds. Okay? And there it is. There's the equation. Right? And we haven't done anything super complicated except keep track of what goes in and what goes out. Okay? And so um, and how, going back to the water part, how can we predict this? You know, we don't know necessarily when you're doing a pour over, you don't know ahead of time exactly how much you're going to have in your brew. Okay? And so, but we can predict that. We already had an equation uh, for the water part. And now, dun, 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 algebra, combine everything together. Okay? And that's what this slide is. And I'm probably running out of time, so I'll just go through this quickly. Um, we can combine it and get the form of Lockhart's equation that he used right there. The percent extraction is the TDS times the brew ratio, which is your ratio of how much water you put in over your coffee grounds minus this absorption ratio. Okay? And so Lockhart just kind of assumed an absorption ratio was always about two grams. And he went and drew his like, diagonal lines on there. Um, and that's, he went forward. Okay, let me go quickly. All right. Maybe that was too many equations. Maybe that was too fast. All right. And I just spent a whole bunch of time and effort going through the coffee brewing control chart. And now I'm going to tell you that the coffee brewing control chart is terrible. Okay. Right? And so, and why is that? Right? So there's a lot, the, the Lockhart had a lot of insight. It was a very good, uh, uh, you know, take, he made a very good effort to try to characterize a complicated process in one chart. Uh, there's this unfortunate uh, tendency that a lot of people in the coffee industry don't know where it com comes from. They don't know the implicit assumptions. They don't know when it's violated. And so here's just a few of them, okay? And so one of them, I mentioned this absorption ratio, this 2.1 grams of water absorbed per gram of dry coffee grounds. It turns out that's not even uh, accurate for most grind sizes. It's a very strong function of the grind size, right? And so I don't have it here, but we have lots of data showing it's a very non-monotonic dependence on grind size. And so already you have some numerical inaccuracies in how you're calculating your values. A lot of you guys do pour overs. You know that if you have freshly roasted coffee, what happens? You have a bloom, you have a lot of carbon dioxide bubbling out, right? Okay. This completely neglects that, so there's uh, uh, inaccuracies due to that. If you, do, if you guys use the standard brewing control charts that are uh, you know, so much volume rather than mass, you have to be very careful because the density of water changes appreciably with temperature. So the coffee brewing control chart is not the same at 90 degrees as it is at 94 degrees, so, uh, if you're using a volume chart. And I think, to me, the most boggling thing is that all of the Lockhart's work was based on percolators. So you might not know this, but Mr. Coffee, the drip brewers, those were invented in the 1970s. Right? And so they, they literally, nobody had heard of drip brewing when they did this original research. And yet today, in 2017, people are still taking classes learning how to use the chart. And those are all just the technical problems. On the sensory side, I mean, uh, one from a modern um, sensory perspective, 
it does a, a big no-no, which is it conflates sensory descriptive descriptions, you know, sour or bitter, right, uh, with hedonic measures, like what tastes good. So it's got that ideal spot. Ideal means that that's what you want, uh, what, that's what the consumer wants. With, so it's, it's a mishmash, you shouldn't do that. Um, the second point is that, like I said, it was based mostly on housewives uh, from the 1950s. And not that there's anything wrong with that per se, but you guys know your uh, target or consumer you know, demographic, that's not necessarily representative of what's going on in 2017. And probably the biggest thing is, the, um, the final point is that it has these very sharp dividing lines um, between different segments. And so a lot of people will say like, oh, I got 18.1% extraction. It's ideal, yay, you know, mission accomplished. They get 17.95, they're like, oh man, it's, it's sour. That, that's, that's, that's not right, or it's not right. I mean, it's so th these like sharp lines give a very false misleading impression to people actually using it that, you know, very minor differences portend some type of huge difference, and that's not at all the case. And so what are we doing about this? And this, this is one of the um, uh, research projects that uh, we just started actually last month. Uh, so I think the funding arrived uh, about six weeks ago or so. And so this is actually, you guys are the first audience I'm sharing any of this with, okay? So this is exciting for me. And so you might have seen there's a little press release. Um, we received some funding from the Specialty Coffee Association uh, to do, uh, basically to update and expand the coffee brewing control chart, okay? And so, <clears throat> Um, the SCA is kind of the program manager. They're uh, organizing it. But I have to give a huge shout out to Breville. Uh, some of you guys might recognize Breville. Um, they're actually underwriting the project. So just in terms of how the money flows, Breville gave a philanthropic donation to the SCA. The SCA turned around and gave a, uh, a research agreement to UC Davis. And for, any of you, for anybody who's really interested in like why we'd kind of do that, I'm happy to talk about university overhead and different funding mechanisms and get into the weeds on that. It gets a bit complicated. Um, focusing on the fun stuff, all right, so I, I'm working on it. Uh, the gentleman on the top right uh, is uh, Jean-Xavier Guinard. He's a professor of uh, sensory science. So he, he does sensory all day long, that's, that's his job. And then the person actually doing all the work is Scott Frost, he's a PhD uh, postdoc uh, who's uh, doing the work. And what are we doing? Like going back to the coffee center, the building is under renovation, it's not there yet. We're very fortunate to be able to borrow some space in RMI. And so we've set up a little coffee lab. This is all within the past month, right? And so if you guys have not had the opportunity to hang out in a sensory uh, lab, uh, modern ones will have like a little isolation booths. You slide open the door, put the food product through, close the door, and then somebody's sitting in a booth with the red light on, so you can't even see the color, and then you, you do it under isolation so you don't have any context bias. You're not bugged by Nick, you know, making harumph noises next to you as he's uh, tasting the Nick. Uh, okay, all right, so, uh, or, or whoever else. And so uh, what we're doing, uh, at least initially, is we're doing, I think, a pretty fun um, experiment. And the next slide has super unauthorized preliminary results, so please don't take a picture and post it on Instagram because they're, they're not statistically significant yet. But what we're doing, uh, because Breville expressed great curiosity in this and we thought it was a fun question, is you know, if everything else is exactly the same, same grounds, same water, same temperature, what yields better coffee? A flat bottom brew basket or a conical basket, okay, and a drip brew, right? And so there's lots of very, I've met people with very strong, uh, border on like religious uh, opinions about which ones are better, and they have very convincing arguments, but there's, there's no hard data in the open literature. And so what we're doing is we're doing something called a series of triangle tests, where we take panelists and we hand them a, a tray with three cups of coffee. Two of them are exactly the same, and one is different. Like, for example, two will be from the flat bottom, one will be from the uh, conical. And then we see, can they tell which one's different? So not, not measuring which one they prefer, just is there even a difference that's measurable, right? And so that's the very first step. And so we did our first, this is really hot off the press, we did our first uh, panel, uh, I forget what day it is, but like about, about a week and a half ago or so. 
And uh, um, the details up here aren't so important. This is the stuff that's not statistically significant yet because we only have n equals nine. So just nine panelists so far. But al already, like uh, under some of the conditions, depending on whether or not you use a coarse or fine grind, uh, we see a, a difference between the, um, between the conical and the flat bottom. So it suggests, based on n equals nine, which is very early, that there's, there's some there, there, and we're going to keep uh, uh, tackling it. For the record, I was one of the panelists, and I got five out of six correct. So I was very, I was very proud of that. Okay. Um, so, anyways, I think I think I went over time. That's one example. We have, and again, the coffee center is not just me. There's about 40 different faculty involved, uh, ranging all the ways from you know microbiology of fermentations to coffee law, sensory analysis, engineering, uh, you know, some plant science. We have everything. A lot of excitement. And just to finish on, on this note, maybe it's a bit cheesy, here's the sun uh, sunrise dawning over the coffee center building. And so I think it's not, it's not just Davis, I mean, well, WCR, uh, everybody in the coffee community's tremendous enthusiasm for coffee science. Really, I think you can honestly say that there is a kind of a new day dawning for uh, coffee science. And uh, you know, we at UC Davis are very happy to be playing a role in that. So thank you. Fantastic. Uh, please come, come join us. Um, as a reminder, anybody ask really tough questions that stump me, you get a free book. <laughs> it's always good to bribe them. Um, so there's one part I didn't understand within it. Uh, only the one part. What's a professor? No, it was, it was, that was complicated. Like, that was, but it wasn't complicated because I, you were explaining. I was going, okay. I mean, that equation thing, is, it's super interesting that you can put it down to just a series of steps. And that's pretty much what your work is, isn't it? Is breaking down those steps to understand them and then see where we are influencing and changing. Yeah, absolutely. So the way, uh, the way engineers would refer to that is uh, developing a predictive mechanistic model. Um, and so um, here I, I just went through the example of you know, a relatively simple question, how much coffee are you going to get to drink? In the future, what I'd love to have is predictive mechanistic models that uh, can tell you about specific flavor profiles in coffee. I mean, everybody here tries really hard to get, you know, capture that blueberry aroma or whatever. But, you know, one of the ultimate goals I'd like to have is like, hey, if you want to have a certain flavor profile, you need to have beans grown from like this, fermented like this, dry process like this, roasted like this, and then brewed like this. If you do all the steps like clockwork, you get that thing. And have an equation for every step along the way. I mean, that, so. That's you know it's, uh, really interesting. I'm sure there's going to be some questions. So uh, you, yeah. Katie's out Who's there. Got a question. <coughs> okay. Thanks. Hello. Hello. Uh, my name's Charlie, and I work with Blue Bottle Coffee. And my question is about carbon dioxide. Okay. I don't know exactly what the question is, but I'm going to start to ask it, and hopefully by the end it will sound like like I know what it is, but I, I guess the question generally is we, like, when we're thinking about coffee roasting and when we're thinking about shelf life of roasted coffee and when we're thinking about extraction, carbon dioxide is generally treated by coffee professionals like something that is in the way of solubility or something that we sort of have to, we have to like let leave the equation in order for us to get something that we're satisfied with because if you are extracting coffee that's too fresh after roasting, you know, you can have edginess in the cup or a gassiness to the, the otherwise, you know, perfectly settled flavors. So I'm wondering if in all this research, and I'm looking at your flow charts, carbon dioxide is always leaving the equation. Have you come across a role of carbon dioxide 
uh, or could you characterize it for us in a particular way so that we know whether or not there is value in it staying in the equation or if there is validity to the fact that it actually does get in the way? Because I'm wondering if the future of, um, of the shelf life of roasted coffee, like if the future of, of our understanding of coffee extraction is actually carbon dioxide based as opposed to solubility based or anything like that. How's that for a question? That Does was that a very sense? long and awesome okay. question. <laughs> um, so, so let me try to break it down. I mean, so things that are well known about coffee is like immediately after roasting, uh, there's a tremendous amount of carbon dioxide trapped inside the bean. I, I think you guys all know that. And so where does the carbon dioxide come from? It's the end uh, point of many of the chemical reactions that are taking place during the roasting. A lot of the Maillard reactions are doing stuff. You end up, just like when you breathe, you end up with carbon dioxide as a waste product. That's, that's in there. Okay? And it's mixed in with all the other volatile organic compounds and other, other things that give coffee its wonderful aroma. Immediately after roasting, um, it's trapped in there. It's at a very high pressure. And so over the next 24 hours or so, there's a tremendous amount of off-gassing. Right? So it, it slowly leaks out. And if you grind it, it goes a lot more quickly. And so in terms of uh, your question about you know, it being in the way, it, you know, it depends. Um, one sign of freshness, obviously, is you get a lot, of, a lot of bubbles coming out when you do a pour over, you know that it's re relatively uh, freshly uh, roasted. In terms of that getting in the way of the other flavor, uh, flavor components, that's a really, really complicated uh, question. I mean, because the, the details of the mass transfer just between the, the solid phase, the coffee grounds, and the aqueous phase, you know, the water, that's complicated already enough. But now if you add a third phase of you know, a gaseous bubbles in the way, sometimes you have you know, transfer this way, sometimes this way, and just breaking that down makes it more complicated. So basically what I'm doing in a, a very professorial hand wave way of saying I don't know, all right? but it's one of the things that uh, we're definitely aware of. I just had some fascinating discussions last week about the um, kinetics of staling, of, you know, of coffee staling. And there's, there's lots of uh, what we would refer to as discontinuities in terms of uh, the staling kinetics. So you already alluded to, you have over the first 24 to 48 hours, you have a tremendous amount of off-gassing. But then you have superimposed on that, you also have chemical reactions taking place. And over a longer time period of about a week, you have a different series of chemical reactions which change the flavor. And then over another longer length scale of a few months, you have other things. You have oxidation of the lipids, uh, basically causing the oil and the beans to go rancid. Um, and you have uh, all these other things. And there has been quite a bit of mass spec work uh, identifying what's in the so-called headspace. You sample the gas of the coffee beans. You can do some spectrometry and figure out what molecules are there. Very little of it's been coupled with sensory. Um, and so that's something that the wine industry has done in great detail. They'll couple the chemical analytical stuff, um, you know, see what peaks are coming off, what molecules are there, and couple that with sensory tastes. You know, that's a blackberry flavor, or that's a cherry flavor, and the, oh, that's that molecule. Not as much of that has happened in coffee. That's why we're trying to set up this coffee center building to have a sensory analysis lab right next to a mass spec lab, right next to the coffee roastery, so we have it all in one place and we really connect these dots. So uh, I don't think I answered your question very well, but it's a great question. So yeah, you, you definitely get a book. <laughs> Hi, I'm Ted from Equator Coffees. And I had a question about the carcinogen acrylamide in coffee. And assuming it exists in a cup of coffee, why aren't we all dying of cancer? <laughs> so I, I should state for the record that earlier this week, I was down in the Los Angeles County Superior Courthouse uh, serving as an expert witness for the coffee industry, who are the defendants, in case you don't know. Uh, there's some guy, um, I'll try to be diplomatic, uh, there's a person down in Los Angeles suing basically everybody in the state of California 
who sold any coffee over a two-year time period. So that's basically every grocery store, every, uh, every uh, large coffee roaster, um, every gas station chain. Uh, there's 91 defendants. And, so, uh, and the, the claim is that they didn't put a Prop 65 cancer warning label on their products um, because of the presence of acrylamide. Acrylamide is a very small molecule, which in rat studies, if you feed enough acrylamide to a rat, it'll get cancer. But it's in huge concentrations in the rat studies. In coffee, it's in very trace amounts. Um, and so, I, <clears throat> because I was doing this expert witness stuff, I can give a whole hour-long talk about this if you want. I'm happy to talk about it. The short answer to your question, um, I'm not a health guy. I'm not an epidemiologist. The expert witnesses brought in for that um, uh, spent a great deal of uh, time talking about so-called J-shaped mortality curves. So in other words, if you, plot, if you plot a number of mortalities versus number of cups of coffee consumed per day, right, it starts off at a certain number at zero cups. It actually, here's the J, it goes down, all right, reaches a minimum somewhere between three and five cups, and then it goes, start going back up again. And so it's actually, that's very similar to what happens in wine. You might have heard that, you know, drinking two cups of red wine a day is good for you. That's that's shown in the epidemiological data with this J-shaped curve that, like, the actually health outcomes are better at two cups of wine. Same thing for coffee. Um, and so I don't know if I know the exact answer to the question, why are we not all dying of cancer from the acrylamide in coffee? I think it's because it's there in very trace amounts. On a positive note, there are so many antioxidants in coffee that they might completely overwhelm whatever carcinogenic properties of, it's not just acrylamide, there's about 23 known carcinogens in coffee, like many other roasted food products. Um, but uh, the amount of antioxidants that, uh, and other things that help um, your, your system uh, in a good way uh, completely overwhelm it. So did, did that answer your question? Yes, okay, you, you got a book too, good job. I heard that one cup of red wine a day was good, but now I'm switching to two. <laughs> so while the research is being done on the new brew chart, can I use this J-curve as my brew chart until it comes th out, is yeah, that okay? Yes, I think you should tell all of your customers about this J-shaped uh, mortality curve. <laughs> yeah. So we have another question and then we're gonna, um, we, we're going to go for our coffee break after that, so uh, we can only have one cup, uh, no, no more than three cups. Uh, please go ahead. Uh, hi, Bill. My name's Haley. I'm a senior at Cal, so I'm very jealous of the program. But um, I have two quick questions. Uh, for the coffee education, your vision for the future, it seems like the programs, as it gets built and with the master um, in the future too, the future generation getting into the coffee industry is very um, optimistic. But what about, what do you think of the role of the coffee and the science and the technical, um, like the equations, what is the role in for um, cafe roasters, baristas, what is their responsibility to know how much of the back background and then how, how can it all come together and not just um, kind of, how does the research come together to the industry? And my second question, quicker, is um, have you, do you foresee any work being done on the byproducts of the coffee, like the spent grain and the grinds? Because um, that seems to, for example, the coffee flower company. Those are both great questions. And so going to your first one, I mean, so obviously a lot of people working in the coffee industry right now, right now are not gonna drop everything and go do a one or two year master's program, uh, you know, anywhere. Uh, and so that's why I, uh, I, I try to highlight that we're gonna also have short courses. We wanna have certifications. Uh, Jean-Xavier Guinard, the sensory guy, he already teaches a pretty successful um, certificate, uh, certificate course in sensory analysis. We wanna have one focused specifically on, on coffee. And just to be clear, that's not like learning how to taste coffee. It's learning really about how to do carefully controlled like statistics 
for uh, sensory purposes, right? And so that's one example. We imagine having workshops on like water chemistry. I didn't even mention water chemistry today. Huge topic right there. Um, and so understanding how the water chemistry affects coffee. Just imagine lots of, for, for uh, translating the results of the research, we are going to uh, partner with SCA to help disseminate things. But we also want to have you know, certifications and training workshops for people like you in the, um, in the coffee center. So that's, that's, what we're, that's what we're going to do. As your second question about, hey, are we doing anything with the coffee byproducts? Absolutely, that's totally on our radar. I mean, like, you know, every 600 pounds of coffee cherries you pick, there's 500 pounds of waste. And so what are you doing with that right now? Right now, the, um, you know, the, the responsible guys at Origin will, uh, you know, uh, uh, put it in a compost, put it back in the soil. The irresponsible ones is dump it in the river and cause tremendous problems of BOD and, you know, environmental degradation. And so understanding how to uh, turn that into something that's better is, uh, there's a guy named Chris Simmons in the coffee center who's doing some uh, work on this. A lot of people have thought about, Hey, can we, you know, we can just burn the stuff, dry it and burn it. That's one way. Um, you know, people are doing, fiddling around with cascara, you know, tea and things like that. That's another way. Uh, my personal uh, uh, preference, one th something I'd love to do, is to figure out how to make a whole separate commodity stream. I mean, those coffee cherries are sweet. They're about 15 bricks. They have a lot of sugar in them. And, you know, think about tequila. Somebody figured out how to take te cactus leaves and turn it into tequila. Why can't we figure out how to turn coffee cherries, which are a lot sweeter, into, I don't know, some type of... Uh, a coffee cherry uh, spirit. You know, that, that, would, that would solve the coffee farmer problem we were talking about earlier in terms of economics. We have two commodity streams with one, um, you know, with one crop. So short answer is yes. Yeah. Maybe you can have the two glasses of wine and the coffee liqueur stroke drink they bring up. And yes. Yes. <laughs> um, Bill, that was absolutely awesome. Uh, thank cannot you. Yeah. thank you enough for sharing that with us. Um, Fantastic presentation. Please, huge round of applause for Bill Wiston Park. Thank you.